0: This is the Philly Soccer Show. I'm KW News Radio's Greg Orlandini. We're doing something a little different this week. We talk with Tim Hanlon. He's the host of the sports podcast. Good seats still available. We talk about the past, present, and future of soccer. On the line with me, and I just have to say that one of the cool things about doing a podcast, and I think my guest will agree, is it gives you an opportunity to uh, talk to people you, whose work you admire in a in a really cool and fun setting where you can have a nice give and take. And I think this is what's going to happen today. I have uh, Tim Hanlon on with me, and he runs the incredibly addictive Good Seat Still Available podcast, which is uh, – I'm going to let you describe it, actually. Tim, uh, greetings, and uh, can tell us what your podcast is about.
1: Well, I appreciate that, Greg. You're very kind to say that. Um, I've been doing this for about a year and a half, and it's uh, it's basically uh, the show is devoted to what used to be uh, in professional sports. And, and the, really the impetus is – to kind of delved into uh, teams and leagues that are either defunct or uh, were previously incarnated. Uh, I've just been, for whatever reasons, uh, fascinated by uh, those kinds of things, uh, maybe as a sports fan growing up, perhaps uh, as, a, as an original New York Cosmos fan, as a kid back at Giant Stadium back in the day, and uh, just fascinated by the North American Soccer League teams that seemingly came and went, and then ultimately the league itself. Uh, that kind of stuck with me and perhaps that was a, a trauma that I never got over. <laughs> but, um, this little podcast is sort of my little way of, I guess, digging back and trying to maybe, uh, uh, figure out how to uh, get more psychologically healthy because of all that.
0: <laughs> um, and this being, uh, my show being a soccer concentrate, let's let, can talk about your, you know, you talk about the cosmos there, but talk about kind of how you discovered the game and how it's kind of stuck with you and, you know, kind of help you along with this podcast.
1: So I I grew up in the uh, yeah, I was a uh, my childhood was mostly that of the 19, in the 1970s and um, you know circa 1974 or so this is uh, I guess I was about eight 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 years old nine years old or so um, that's when I sort got uh, uh, exposed to the sport of soccer for the first time uh, and you know back in that time uh, while not musty oldie days per se uh, the idea of uh, soccer for kids uh, was relatively, uh, sparse. I mean, I think in the Northern New Jersey area where I grew up, certainly in the Philadelphia area and lots of pockets on the East coast and perhaps a few other places, St. Louis, et cetera. Um, pretty common. Um, and I was lucky and fortunate to be, you know, growing, to grow up in one of those areas, but, uh, you know, got started playing. And then, you know, I think it was, uh, in 1975 when, um, my team was receiving uh, some you know, end-of-year, end-of-season awards. I think we had a good year that year. Um, we uh, had uh, two players from this uh, entity called the New York Cosmos uh, come to uh, introduce themselves, sign autographs, pictures, and hand out their awards to us. Um, and I had no idea what the hell that was. I had no idea who, you know. I, and this was even a couple of weeks before Pele had even been fined. Um, So that was sort of my initial kind of like uh, curiosity stroke, I guess. Uh, And then the Pele thing happened, and then it just became sort of a snowball of awareness, I guess, that there was not only this soccer thing that I could actually participate in and be somewhat good at, but a professional league, uh, soon to be finally in my backyard in northern New Jersey two years later, uh, that was um, bubbling up. And and hence my love of the Cosmos and uh, the broader North American Soccer League and then just soccer generally.
0: So let's talk about NASL. And uh, I have, uh, I think, a guy you know a little bit who's there. his a historian and legal consultant, Steve Holroyd. He's a, uh occasional guest on my show. But uh, the, the NASL, you know, you, you, you hear people talk about in so, so many mixed ways that it was exciting and flashy in Hollywood. But also it was a really bright star that burned out pretty quickly. Uh, is, that, is that a pretty good assessment of it?
1: Yeah, I think so. And I, again, my, my memories are tinged with um, perhaps the uh, 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 disproportionately uh, white hotness of the New York cosmos, right? Because that was, you know, if the league itself could be described as that, uh, as a white hot comet that sort of came and went quickly, the cosmos were probably the, you know, the microcosm of that, if you will. Um, you know, I I think, though, that belies a bit of Of the history, and frankly, we've gotten into some of this on the podcast uh, with people like Clive Toy and um, um, Bobby Moffat of the uh, Old Dallas Tornado, and uh, lots of interesting stories, sort of of the, you know, the years that sort of led up to what the Cosmos and uh, its ilk sort of brought in about the mid to late 1970s, right? Because prior, a pretty torturous history, right? 1967, Mm -hmm. you had two professional leagues uh, when there were none the year before. Uh, that begot the uh, NASL as a combined entity in 1968, and you know, as as Clive Toy uh, uh, deeply went to in our our, uh, our conversation with him, you know, the thing was on life support. Like circa 1971, it was already down to five teams, right? So the fact that it 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 was able to you know crater and then rebuild itself in a relatively short order to get to the point where in 77, 78. You are getting sellout crowds at Giant Stadium, almost 80,000 people. Uh, It was just, you know, an amazing story. And then, you know, a couple of years later, it was, you know, pretty much gone by 1984. So uh, to me, that's always been fascinating. I think the league actually um, was underrated, I think, in terms of the quality. I think the talent was uh, quite uh, substantial. I think that the season was relatively short and uh, truncated because we still had players trying to play in Europe and and play, you know, uh, a couple of extra months during the summer in the United States. Um, but look, I, you know, and I, I I know this is a bit of a hayography of, of my remembrances of the Cosmos, but I don't think it's, uh, uh, I don't think I'm stretching here to say that the, the Cosmos were probably the best team for a good two or three years, at least in the world at that time, 77, 78, 79. Um, and maybe the uh, the uh, archetype for uh, what the you know today's super clubs look like in Europe.
0: Yeah, because you had Pele, you had Beckenbauer, you had all these big names of guys that could still you know kind of get out there and play, and they were all con- kind of concentrated on that Cosmos team at the time.
1: You you had also had an, an owner in Steve Ross, right, who was the uh, CEO of Warner Communications at the time, who like a lot of soccer owners at that time, for whatever reasons, were not able to get an NFL franchise, for example. And, you know, with his, uh, international cadre of executives like the Erdogan brothers, you know, very, uh, a stellar uh, talent in the, uh, the recording, the music industry, uh, with knowledge and urbane understanding of professional soccer on a worldwide basis. Right. Um, not only did it become a play toy for them and that ilk, but, um, it actually became a passion of theirs. Uh, Not to say that Steve Ross was the ultimate soccer genius, nor may frankly the Erdogans, but um, they did know uh, what attracted audiences uh, and they certainly had a checkbook and they didn't really, I think they were really, you know, um, understanding that the New York metropolitan area uh, could support uh, and was full of people who could understand high quality soccer and, um, you know what? For a couple of years there, they were absolutely correct. Uh, the business model ultimately not sustainable, but boy, oh boy, what a time!
0: So let's let's move on down the New Jersey Turnpike to uh, you know my neck of the woods here in the Philadelphia area. What was uh, Philadelphia's place in NASL in, the, in that time period?
1: Yeah, well, as uh, as I'm sure a bunch of your audience sort of knows and remembers, right? The Philadelphia. Um, Spartans were actually part of the original, uh, two leagues that became the NASL, uh, in 1968. Um, the Adams, uh, sort of came about in 73 and, uh, in their first ever season, um, coached by Al Miller, another one of our guests on the show, uh, I forgot what episode, so I apologize. Um, you know, uh, basically, uh, pre- uh performed a miracle by winning their, uh, uh, their first ever season of winning the NSL championship in Dallas uh, when they were uh, heavily favored not to do so. Um, and the Adams had a very interesting sort of history. Uh, I think, frankly, um, if you look back, and again, I'm not from the Philly area, but uh, I think those who have been there long enough will recognize that I think the Adams were really uh, a seminal uh, time in Philadelphia's soccer history, obviously very rich prior, certainly the ASL, et cetera. Lots of uh, ethnic teams in particular too. but the Adams, I think really um, you know, were kind of one of the, if not the real first success stories in the NASL. 73 and 74, I mean they were getting some very decent crowds in the vet uh, as well as performing well on the field. Now 76 it kind of fell apart, different ownership, another thing. and then you know, so I under, undercredited I think the Adams, but um, <laughs> then later, <laughs> Then comes the 78 season plus of uh, the Philadelphia Fury, which was a, a very interesting and almost uh, a completely different experience. Um, and we get into a little bit of that with some of our conversations on our show. Um, you know, perhaps the Fury, uh, a good example, uh, a good uh, um, uh, idea, frankly, of how uh, what went wrong with the NASL. Uh, a really quintessential example of... Uh, Owners who kind of didn't really understand soccer, they weren't necessarily actively involved. Uh, came from other worlds like the music industry and, and concert promotion, uh, and um, you know I maybe didn't were as attentive to the product on the field, uh, nor uh, getting as many people as they could in the stands. Um, but I bite my tongue. And then the last thing <laughs> I'll throw out there, the last thing I'll throw out there is is. is Philadelphia has uh, also an underrated uh, 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 part in history in the indoor game, which I think is uh, woefully underrepresented in uh, in the Soccer Hall of Fame and, and frankly needs to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you remember, right, the Adams uh, really were the first ever indoor game uh, on some, any level back in 74. Um And it uh, actually was the beginnings of the idea of what ultimately became the MISL in 1978 with Ed Tepper and Earl Foreman uh, in the spectrum. So Philadelphia very much, uh, I think you can trace direct lineage to uh, the birth of modern indoor soccer uh, that took over in the late 70s and early
0: 80s. And you fast forward and you had the Kicks who were kind of, it was kind of the last gasp of that phase of the indoor game before MLS really took over and the outdoor game started getting traction again, but you had the kicks absolutely. who were a perennial one, apparently one of the stronger teams in that, in that, of that time too.
1: Yeah, absolutely. As the MISL kind of, uh, meandered and sort of, you know, then, uh, sort of, uh, I guess folded in or begot the AISA. And then what ultimately became the NPSL indoor version mm-hmm. and all those sort of permutations, uh, the kicks, you know, to their credit, uh, stayed around for many years, uh, uh you know, uh, keeping the faith, if you will. Um, and, uh, again, I think Philadelphia's soccer history professionally is um, is rich in stories and um, uh, very vital. Uh, I think without uh, some of those teams, frankly, um, you know, we uh, we wouldn't be enjoying some of the fruits of, uh, say, the Union and, and Major League Soccer uh, that exists today.
0: And uh, the thing about the Fury I always get a kick out of, that you had guys like Rick Wakeman and Rod Stewart involved in the ownership who wanted to bring over their favorite players who were, Probably a little, little, little past the uh, sell by date in their in their age and talent at that point in their careers, but they wanted to bring these guys over anyway because they were players that they they grew up with or really enjoyed.
1: Well, I think you're being charitable, and uh, you know there are some uh, some videos on YouTube. You see some of the uh, uh, the uh, upwards of three or four thousand people rattling around a, a veteran stadium uh, <laughs> for some of those games, and uh, I, you know um, I, the fear the uniforms were great. I love right. the color schemes. Uh, and there were a couple. Look, they even made the playoffs. There was that one season where they were ten and twenty, I think, and they still squeaked into the playoffs. Um, but again, it, it's a really good uh, example of of some of the uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, the eccentricity, shall we say, of that of that league, uh, certainly at that time.
0: So, as you know, and a good portion of my listeners probably realize now that the history of soccer in america is a lot longer than i think probably maybe the average sports fan realizes it's a, it's a long history but it's a really fractured history in a lot of ways but what do you see that kind of knits it together through time what 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 are the things that kind of keep the history of this sport kind of going as long as it, it, you know through time yeah
1: there's there's no doubt that um uh, that the, the history of the game in this country is uh is long and um and rich uh i think it hasn't been perceived as being uh largely popular uh as some of the the myths or the uh the legends i guess of some of the other sports that are more well entrenched i guess in the american sports landscape certainly like baseball etc um but uh, and i would let people like steve and, and others you know uh, sort of wax mm-hmm. um uh, deep and nostalgic on, on that stuff. But I would say I, my sense is that, and most people that I've talked to for this show and then just in general in life as, as being you know interested and passionate about soccer, um, most of them had some level of involvement in, in the game personally, uh, whether as a player, as a youth, or even in their adulthood, or their kids or grandchildren or others Uh, uh, that they're related to who are players and it rubbed off on them to become involved, whether it's a coach or as a referee or as an administrator and that kind of stuff. And um, I I think it's uh, uh, the, the question has always been, I think, can that interest in the game? And it's a simple game, right? As Pelé said, you know, famously, it's the simplest game. Uh, And I think that's part of its appeal, certainly worldwide in that, doesn't take you don't have to be a tall person you don't have to be you know three hundred pounds and a big linebacker type body I mean there's lots of different anybody can play this game and it's relatively easy to learn and it's fun to play um, and I think that that hooks a lot of people and I think the real question is always though um, how and when and if does it translate to um, professional fandom. Uh, uh, as part of that. And, you know, I, a lot of the stories we've talked about on our show do revolve around, you know, whether or not there was a professional team in one city at the time one started to play or become involved in the game at a grassroots level or not. Um, and I, there is evidence that I've not done a study on it, but you can see the direct correlation between professional soccer support and fandom and, and success, with um, you know, being around, when uh, to attract people who are uh, playing or, or coaching and whatnot. Um, when it's not there, there's a missing link, right? It becomes more of a niche, right? But when sure. kids, you know, start to see players in their neighborhood or could go to games and stuff, there's a bit of emulation there. They can actually sort of see what could possibly be for them, uh, even if it's a dream. At least it's there. They know that there's another level. When it's not there. Um, you know, then I think people kind of see a natural end to it, maybe in high school or possibly in college. Um, but when the pro game exists, right, it gives people a reason to stick around, even after their playing days or involvement are over, uh, to continue their support by supporting their local club. And that, to me, you know, we're, it's an embarrassment of riches now with all the minor, you know, the Division Two and Division Three activity that's going on at Major League Soccer, going up to 28 teams hopefully in the next couple of years. Yeah, there are problems and issues. I mean, look, today's game, the U.S. lost 3 nothing to England in right. the, the friendly today. But, you know, I, versus where we were in the 70s or even earlier than that, uh, you know, um, I, I can't see anything but upward uh, momentum for us in the sport going forward, I hope.
0: So it's going to continue. We're taking kind of a – starting to look into the present a little bit. And uh, one of the reasons – it's funny. One of the reasons why I wanted to do an interview with you is that uh, the interview that you did with uh, Michael Egovino, if, if I'm getting his name right, uh, he did a, he did a kind of his chronicle of his soccer fandom and, and growing up kind of in a similar area and similar circumstances, you becoming a Cosmo fan and kind of getting swept up in the NASL. And in that interview, you guys kind of really spoke romantically about NASL in a lot of ways. In comparison to MLS, and it, it just felt like, do you think there's a, in MLS a little bit of that romanticism isn't quite there yet with the, with the game?
1: Yeah, it's a very good question. And, and Michael and I talked about this a bit on our show. And, and I've actually asked this question of other people uh, in, in, from NASL memories and that kind of stuff about that. Um, I try to be as pragmatic about it as possible, right? So I'm of a certain age now where, you know, you get a little older, you get a little bit more jaded. Um, and I also am trying to check myself to, uh, you know, make sure that I'm not just looking through my memories of childhood North American soccer league games, sort of with that, hagiography, uh, you know, sort of that, um, you know, that sort of a a sheen, shall we say, right. Um, and overlooking the issues and the problems. Uh, Uh, but I, I will say that it's been a little for me. Okay. It's been a little harder to, um, uh, grasp and get passionate about, uh, the MLS game. Um, it's not the play. I think some of the play has been tremendous and exciting. Um, and I, you know, I was a uh, season ticket holder number 17 for the Chicago fire when they were announced in 97. Um, but I'll be honest, I haven't gone to a fire game in about three, four years. Uh, some of that is because of the distance from my home to the, to the, uh, to Toyota park, uh, the for me. Um, but it's also, you know, I don't know. I, I perhaps it's single entity uh, and the way the players are allocated uh, versus a pure franchise model. Uh, perhaps it's um, uh, the the branding is more about the league than it is about the individual teams. Uh, I think that the teams are getting a bit more individually flexible of late, which I think is a good step. Um, I personally was a bit put off by. The, what I still think exists today is sort of a bit of a uh, benign—I uh, 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 want to say ignorance—but a benign sort of um, blind spot, I guess, of recognizing uh, or, or tipping one's cap to the heritage of the sport before Major League Soccer came along. Right. So the fact that the Timbers and the Sounders and the Whitecaps and the Earthquakes—I mean—the fact those names have come back, um, I'm heartened by that, and I think it really it takes the teams themselves to kind of dig deep into their history and remember that. I'm not so sh- I'm not so sure the MLS brass kind of, you know, welcomes that. Mm-hmm. Warmly. Uh, and I also think that's sort of playing out a little bit in some of the, you know, in the national soccer hall of fame and stuff too. I, look, I'm not saying that, you know, we, we need to sort of rally around the flag and, and remember every single thing and all that. I, and I can understand where MLS doesn't want to necessarily remember some of the not so great, days of the NASL, especially it's collapsed. Right. But, you know, as I've said on many of these, these shows, especially with some of the uh, the direct participants in that old, in the old league, you know, without their actions, without their actions, without their passion, without their belief, especially when the league was down to five teams, right. Um, you don't have an MLS. You don't have a lot of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, I think that's all I would sort of suggest is, you know, I, why not embrace or at least more officially recognize uh, that which came before? I'm not saying have a Philadelphia Fury uh, parade at the <laughs> next Union game, but, I mean, you know, I, why not? You can have some fun with it. I mean, just dress, you know, ha, ha, take to have one uniform for one game, you know, reflect the Fury colors, you know, and you could have a reunion of some of the players, and it's just seeds, right? It was only a three-year thing, but those are seeds of, you know. And and there was a whole bunch of union fans that you know I'm sure have some memories of the Fury and welcome the fact that there's actually a real team that almost you know uh, went to, to the next level in the playoffs this year.
0: And it's it's interesting what you say, and I, and you know it makes sense now that I think about it that that the league brands the league over the teams, but I think you're starting to see organically, like with Atlanta United and LAFC now, and just just. Organically, they're busting out of that, because they're just really, really planting their flag in the league, and it's tough to ignore some of the some of the things that are happening with these teams.
1: No, I, I and I think it's great. I, I think though the next step will be, and this will be a crucial step, is how and when a major league soccer can uh, step off the uh, the gas, the artificial gas, mm-hmm. if you will, of single entity and. Uh, allow some of the teams to kind of, you know, be a little bit more autonomous uh, in their. And look, I, we've explored this issue, too, the idea of franchise model versus single entity. Uh, it, it, it's a it's as old as as the idea of professional leagues all the way back to baseball start in the late 1800s. Um, and it's a, bit, a debate. Right. And I I would argue back in 1996, coming off of the World Cup and trying to get a league, professional league, up and running after the demise of what was the NASL about a decade prior. Absolutely, the idea of single entity was a very wise and judicious approach. But it's now 2018, right? And there is, you know, it. on many, many levels, this is a very successful league, and, and full credit to Garber and friends for, for doing so, no doubt. But I, I do think that the next step is probably existential in do we, you know, is single entity the way to go going forward or could we start to modify it a bit? Because, you know, if we're going to get if we're going to tackle the elephant in the room, right, which is MLS quality versus other leagues around the world. Right. You know, it's always there. The euro snobs, always there. Right. And nobody and nobody's going to give ML, those types of folks never going to give MLS the credit it's due and where it's come from. Um, it probably has to be more open market, I guess, to be competitive for some of the supposed best talent in the world. Um, I just think it's inevitable that MLS is going to have to figure out how it hopefully judiciously segues from pure single entity into more of a franchise autonomous model. Um, I think then is probably when you'll see the quality and You know, things even go to another level where, you know, it could kind of, uh, you know, not be, um, uh, you know, uh, still looked upon as as a niche, if you will, but maybe even take it to the next level in terms of its popularity. That's my crack analysis.
0: (laughs) Excellent. Um, Let's let's shift back and talk about your program a little bit, Uh, especially when it pertains to soccer, doing your interviews and doing the show. What... Uh, what are some of the biggest surprises you've come across uh, throughout doing your program?
1: So I, I'll i be honest. I think the soccer ones are the uh, the ones that are uh, most directly interesting to me because it's the one that, that kind of spurred my passion in the first place, as I said earlier. Um, I think I'm probably most surprised generally by um, uh, the, uh, I guess, the direct – uh, impact and stories that, that people sort of share and their passion that comes through for the game. Right. So we talked to, um, you know, Kyle Rote Jr. And, uh, and Bobby Moffitt and uh, uh, Rick Davis, um, you know, some great players of yore. Um, and you really get into uh, some of their personal stories and, 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 you know, these are people that, you know, were scratching out a living, you know, with all due respect, uh, you know, in times when soccer and its success was not guaranteed in this country, fledgling, if you will. Uh, I mean, you talked to Bobby Moffat. I mean, he's talking about how the players, uh, you know, would basically be working odd jobs in the off season. Um, you know, uh, painting lines on, on, you know, prep school soccer fields, or, you know, he talks about, uh, uh, setting up the chicken wire uh, at uh, uh, with Paul Child, I'm sorry, Paul Childs with the San Jose Earthquakes. He's talking about setting up chicken wire in the, the Cow Palace so that they could play indoor soccer uh, in the NASL tournament there in 74. Um, you know, and but the, why? I mean, going out into the communities, uh, you know, kicking the balls around with kids and, you know, trying to, you know, literally stumping to get, you know, people to come to games and stuff, right? I mean, he's you know, in some respects, they didn't have to do this kind of stuff, I guess, but they kind of did, right? Because the Ron Newmans of the world, I mean, these are people who just bent over backwards and, and, and you hear that in all their remembrances and and to a person, to a person, they all sort of, they all say to me, I would do it again in a heartbeat, right? And they feel so proud of what they're able to have laid foundation for. And then when they see things like major league soccer, uh, and frankly, I think that this is a place where some credit is overdue for some of these folks who, you know, with no guarantee of any kind of success, look at a Phil Woosnum. I mean, without Phil Woosnum, you know, the North American Soccer League would have died in 1971 and we wouldn't have had the second sort of spurt of it. Um, and and that's, that to me is really amazing. I, there is one story I'll, uh, I will say that it was hugely surprising to me. And this was our interview with Rick Davis. Um, as many people remember him as Ricky Davis, right? The New York Cosmos. He was kind of one of the first, uh, American soccer phenoms, uh, playing on the stars to the team known as the Cosmos. And we got into a little bit of a conversation. I want to get to a deeper one with some other folks, uh, about this, uh, team in 1983, uh, in the NASL called team America, which some of your audience may remember as sort of this, uh, Washington DC based franchise that, uh, was, um, I guess, a good idea on paper where it was designed to be sort of a U.S. Native American Native All-Star team that would essentially be the U.S. national team and would uh, hopefully better prepare the United States for um, qualification and then hopefully play in the 1986 World Cup. Uh, it, didn't kind of, it didn't kind of go quite that way. Um, but Rick got into a very interesting conversation. It was just kind of un, unprovoked, frankly, but I, I was amazed that he would share this. But he basically talked about um, the decisions that many of the American players in the NASL had to deal with to, to either go to Team America or stay with their current teams. And Rick said you know, that he made the, he made the decision to stay with the Cosmos. Uh, and his friend, uh, defender Jeff Durgan on the team, decided to go to Team America. And, you know, Durgen felt this was something that that should be done for, for his country, for his team. And and he really didn't appreciate the fact that Rick would stay back with the Cosmos and sort of earn the easy paycheck. And But then, you know, Rick, would, Rick said, you know, this is, I'm playing with the best in the world. And uh, I can't imagine how I would get better by playing with, you know, uh, the American uh, team in the NSL when I can be playing and learning from, you know, the masters at in the Cosmos organization. And 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 Rick said, really, at the in the middle of our show, he said, I lost a friendship with Jeff Durgan. I haven't talked to him since that time, since 1983. Uh, oh. um, so I, I guess what that gets at is that the passion of the game and people's belief sets around it are very real. And, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's great to hear some of these stories, remember some of them, and uh, and delve into it because I don't think they're, uh, they're explored enough. And if we can do that a little bit of that with this podcast, well, uh, maybe I've done my job, I guess.
0: Uh, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, please tell uh, my listeners where they can find, uh, find your program. Good seats still available.
1: Well, oh, thanks Greg. I appreciate it. It's uh, it's the, the, again, it's called good seats still available. Uh, you can go to their web, our website. It's good seats, still com. Pretty easy to remember. Just watch your S's and your spelling. Uh, and it's available literally wherever podcasts are found. So just uh, point your podcatcher to uh, to the Good Seats uh, available feed. And uh, we've got a lot of great sponsors and a ton of great stories coming up, soccer and otherwise, you know, uh, World Football League and, uh, you know, all the teams and leagues from other league um, sports and stuff. But soccer, as as your audience now knows, is uh, is my first love and passion and uh, plenty more of those stories to come for sure.
0: And like I said, the, the program, if you're a guy like me who loves sports, but not only loves sports, but, you know, it's – bit of a history buff and loves the history of sports and I you know I would I have found myself listening with rapt attention to your programs about the Canadian Football League a league I know very little about but just again because I think we do this kind of thing because we're attracted to stories just some fascinating and hilarious stories involving not only you know the Canadian Football League but some of the you know, the soccer stuff that you've done and stuff with WHA. And uh, like you said, you're kind of unearthing these stories that may otherwise, you know, not see the light of day a lot of times.
1: Well, yeah, I appreciate that. And, uh, you know, the good news is there's plenty of these stories uh, out there uh, and, um, uh, and there's no shortage of leagues and teams that are are still being made, right? We've got two professional uh, football leagues that are going to launch in the next two years. Now the XFL is returning and uh, this thing called the Alliance of American Mm -hmm. football. So, you know, I, as, uh, every day there's something new in the world of sports. So uh, in many respects, I think I've got an evergreen topic here. So um, I appreciate your listening, and I'm sorry to, to di- divert you from other activities. But I uh, uh, I appreciate you having me, and I'd love to have uh, some more listeners. And we welcome uh, uh, all their comments and maybe suggestions too.
0: All right. Excellent, Tim. I want to thank you very much for joining me tonight and taking, taking some time out. This was a great, great talk.
1: Greg, totally my pleasure. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Take care.
1: Bye-bye.